as you may or may not know, this, uh, since spring break, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're not going to cover the whole book of Ecclesiastes, but we are going to pull out some wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of the wisdom books in the Bible. The Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. In other words, when you think about wisdom, you should think about connecting everything you think, everything you are, everything you feel to God. It's a pretty basic concept. Uh, and yet for a lot of people, spirituality is something that they sort of cordon off and it's sort of a part of their life. What we hope RUF is about is connecting the dots. One of the things that's really hard to do in our culture is to connect the dots between why we do what we do and um, how our the Christian faith impacts the kinds of things that we um, study and pursue and do and all those kinds of things. And so we're looking at this wisdom book, Ecclesiastes, to help us understand that. And the book of Ecclesiastes, in particular, is a book about wisdom for living in a fallen world. A lot of translations, well, the NIV translation starts out saying, vanity, vanity, sorry, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The King James uh, uses the word vanity and says vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Uh, as I talked the first week, there's a Hebrew word behind those translations, hevel, which is a word for vapor or breath. And it's really the idea, not so much that everything is meaningless. It's not an, a book about existentialism, um, this sort of philosophy that life is meaningless and then you die. So, you know, exercise the will to power and try to make some purpose in your own life. It's not about that. That philosophy actually comes a lot later than the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes um, is, is really about frustration. It's about how after sin has entered the world, everything is frustrated. And, and one of the ways that you see that frustration is the way death comes into the world and puts an end to everything. And, and the fact that, that things end in death actually begins to seep over into the way we live our life and the things that we think about and pursue. So we've talked some about that. But the book, book of Ecclesiastes is not all dreariness. It's not all um, depressing. It is, what I would say, it's frankly a realistic book. It, it, it's a very important book, I think, for Christians in our day and age to grapple with. Because most Christians I know, particularly in the South, have a very kind of fairy tale view of Christianity and the difference that it's supposed to make. The idea that if I'm really a Christian, if I really love Jesus... If I'm really fired up for him all the time, that my life will be smooth and I'll know what he wants to do, me to do with my life and who to marry. And, you know, if I get off that path, well, then, of course, things are going to fall apart. No, Ecclesiastes is about living God's will, living the way he tells you to, keeping his commandments, fearing God, brings you into the midst of all kinds of frustration because life is frustrating. And Christians of all people should be honest about that. That's what it's a book about. It's a book about wisdom. How do we live in a world that's fallen, where sin has entered the world and messed up everything? And, and one of the wonderful things that Ecclesiastes says is it says that God, in the midst of this fallen world, not only does he continue to teach us, he does continue to reach out to us, um, most preeminently, of course, in sending his son to come and to die for us, but he gives us all kinds of good gifts, even in the midst of the frustration I've talked about some of those. There's a wonderful verse in Ecclesiastes where it says um, that a man should take joy in his wife and his work all of the frustrating days of life under the sun. And it's not necessarily, you know, just for men. But it's the idea that through relationships, solid relationships, through good work, 
that we can actually receive joy from God in the midst of the frustration. So it's a book that says, listen, don't be naive. You will not be able to carve out a little life for yourself in this world that will not be touched by frustration. As a matter of fact, everything you do will ultimately frustrate you at one level. Yet, neither are you just to sort of check out and say, well, then I'll just kill my hope and I'll go around and I'll pretend that there is no hope in this world, so I'll never be disappointed. No, you can't do that either because God gives good gifts even in the midst of the frustration, good gifts that call us even to understand that there's something even greater coming. Tonight, we're going to talk about one of those gifts, the gift of friendship, the good gift of friendship. And it's a good topic because our world is obsessed with the idea of friends, right? We, we all want friends. I mean, if you did a survey in this room or in any room and you asked people what their number one problem is, they would tell you without a doubt it's loneliness. Loneliness is epidemic. And yet, friendship is our obsession. So how do we explain this? We all want friends. We spend so much of our energy, both mental and physical, in trying to to get friends. And yet, most of us are desperately lonely in the midst of a culture that's obsessed with friendship. Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in New York City, says that the most important relationship for a traditional person, this would be more like your grandparents or great-grandparents, the most important relationship for those kind of people was always their family. And you can see that if you know some of the stories of your own family. Your great-grandparents and your grandparents were very motivated to not disappoint or bring shame upon the family. Different, though, than modern people. Modern people are more like your parents. For modern people, the most important relationship is, is a lover. It's the most important thing. There's a great uh, movie. Well, I, I don't think it's a great movie, but it's a great example. Um, maybe some of you have seen Kramer versus Kramer. Anybody see, see that old movie? If you want to understand sort of the, the culture you grew up in, it's a good movie to see. You know, in 1975, Ann Landers um, asked her readers this question. You know, Ann Landers writes a little kind of column. Um, she may be dead now. I'm not even sure. She, is she dead? She finally passed. Um, but it was a column about, you know, giving people advice on their lives and their personal relationships and those kinds of things, etiquette, all that stuff. In 1975, she asked her readers, if you had to do it over again, would you have children? Some 80%, 70 or 80% of the people that responded, hundreds of thousands of people that responded said no. Now, when were you born? <laughs> right? So this is, this is sort of, now why is that? Now, if you watch Kramer versus Kramer, you'll understand. The point of the 70s was all about me. We call it the me decade, right? This is when I grew up. But it's when, it's when a lot of your parents were growing up. And it was sort of these, these attitudes of um, you have to do what's right for you. In the movie Kramer versus Kramer, basically the mom and the dad split up. The mom basically has to choose between living her life or caring for her children. She finally decides that she needs to be true to herself and live her life and abandon her children. And it's presented as, as a movie that's sort of a positive movie. It's not, what's remarkable about it is the way the people that, you know what's always depressing to me? The movies that depress me the most are the ones that, that the filmmakers feel like they have a redemptive ending and it's still empty. And this was one of those kind of movies, right? In other words, in that, 
you know, lovers, the people you choose to love are, are really the most important people. And yet what's interesting is for your generation, for more postmodern folks, it's really your friends that are most significant relationships. Because one of the formative influences on most of your lives is that lovers leave. The people that are supposed to love you leave, but friends stick with you. So it's not surprising, given sort of the history culturally of where we've come from, that we would be obsessed and very concerned about the idea of friendship. And yet the thing is, we still have so much trouble with friendship. And so many of us are so desperately lonely. Now, C.S. Lewis actually wrote uh, a book back in 1960 called The Four Loves. Some of you may have heard of C.S. Lewis, famous Christian author, very profound thinker. But even in 1960, he said that for me to write a chapter in this book about friendship, the love that is friendship, he says, "It, it, it seems that I have to do, I have to write this chapter as an act of rehabilitation. Because really the idea of friendship in the way that the Puritans used to pray for one bosom friend. God, just give me one bosom friend. That this idea that the Greeks and the, and the, and the, the poets, uh, the classical poets understood about friendship had really disappeared from our society, he said in 1960. And I, I don't know if it's gotten really any better. Um, what, I'm going to quote some things from, this, from his little chapter there. Reading that chapter, you're just like, wow, there's real wisdom here. From a guy who's steeped in the scriptures and steeped in some of the classic literature and understanding of friendship, he looks at our culture and says, we've lost a lot. We long for friendship, and we should long for friendship because we were made for friendship. So here's the interesting thing. The Bible says that God is both the creator and the lawgiver. That means that what he writes about in the scriptures about how we're supposed to live really fits what we were made for. So when the book of Ecclesiastes, as we're going to read here in just a second, talks about friendship, listen, it's what you were made for. Do you realize, you know, God looked at the creation and said, it is good, it is good, it is good. But there was one thing that he said, it is not good. It is not good that man is alone. Now, this was before sin entered into the world. God said, it's not good that man is alone. And so he created one to be with him, one that the Bible describes as a helper. And ladies, lest you think that that is a demeaning term, it's actually a word never used of human beings. It's always used of God. Psalm 46, a great example. God is our helper. God is our helper. The idea um, that we need companionship, we need friendship. You see, the one flesh relationship that was to exist between Adam and Eve is so much more than sex. Actually, in the fall, we'll talk about that a lot because we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about relationships and sex and marriage and dating and all that kind of stuff. But the idea is that God created Adam and Eve to be friends. To be friends. It's part of what marriage is about, but not just marriage. Friendship. Now, see, here's the thing. In our culture, in so many ways, in our relationships, in my life, in your life, we settle for so much less than the Bible offers up in this idea of friendship. The gift of God that is friendship, we often settle for companionship. And we often confuse friends and lovers. 
So I want to look at a passage in Ecclesiastes, we're going to get to it now, that gives us some wisdom about the way the Bible understands friendship and why friends are so important. If you got your Bible, it's in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, just after Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes um, chapter 4, we'll start at verse 7. And again, that word meaningless should be better translated frustration, so I'll say it that way. Again, I saw something frustrating under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is frustrating, a miserable business. So they're sort of, in verse 7 and 8, kind of the human condition described. When sin entered the world, it had, part of the effect it had was bringing, breaking down relationships between human beings. Thus that people are alone where they should have had companionship. And that actually even spills over to, into the idea that he's doing, if, even if he's doing good work, the fact that the relationship aspect of his life is not what it should be, makes even the work seem pointless and frustrating. But then look at this, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Let's pray briefly, and then we'll talk about this a little more. Lord, we do thank, thank you for your word. We thank you for this wisdom. Help us to understand your pattern for friendship here, and help us to become good friends for your kingdom's sake, that we would model to the world that Christianity makes a difference in how we live and how we relate, and how we love. We ask you to have mercy upon us and to help us connect those dots. And may you use even the foolishness of preaching from your word tonight to do that. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Friends versus lovers. Listen, if two are good, Ecclesiastes says, three are even better. So, you know, it's interesting. I remember in seminary, they, in taking a class where we talked about doing weddings, they said, Listen, there's a couple verses that people always want to be in their wedding that are really completely taken out of context and aren't about weddings. And this is one of those. People all the time love to go to verse 12 and say, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Well, obviously, that's the bride and the groom and then Jesus. If we have Christ at the center of our relationship, then we have a strong relationship that can never be broken. That's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about that. This is actually saying that three friends are even better than two, which is a pretty interesting thing, because in that there's an insight about the nature of true friendship and how it differs from marriage. Now, again, blessed are you if you marry your best friend. I hope that for all of you. But there's something, there's something here, there's a difference between the love that is romantic love, eros, and the love that is friendship is one of the four loves, as the ancients called it. And C.S. Lewis has separate chapters on these, and he has a helpful distinction. And I think that this, this idea about three strands versus two, if you don't understand true friendship, the idea that you can have three 
rather than two seems kind of, kind of weird. Because, you know, so many, I, I have a little girl now, she's four. Last year in preschool, she found a bosom friend, which is pretty unusual. When she was three, for little girls who are three, they don't usually, little girls or boys, they don't really play together. They all play in the same room, and you hope that they don't, like, take things from each other and get into huge fights. But she had this little friend, Carly, and the two of them, they would see each other, and they would just run together and embrace and love each other, and they just couldn't wait to see each other. And Wendy, my wife, and Carly's mom would just remark on, wow, how unusual is this, these little girls? This year, though, a third little girl came into the, into the mix and, and started this whole pattern that I'd always seen with my sister, that girls do this. Guys, I, you know, I don't know boys, I don't do this as much, little boys. But little girls say, we don't like you. <laughs> they do. Little girls do this. We too, we don't like you. Three girls being, three little girls being friends is difficult to maintain. It is. Because of the fall. And I'm seeing that, I'm, I'm living that with my little girl now. Sometimes she doesn't even want to go to school because her two little friends didn't play with her the day before. She doesn't want to go to school, right? What, there's something that they're missing about true friendship at their young age, but it's not just them. I think a lot of us miss it. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says here. It's fascinating. Um, I think what he's suggesting is that maybe some of what we call friendships are not real friendships, but are in actuality two selfish people feeding off each other and defending their kill. <laughs> right? You don't want to go near a lion when she's, you know, feeding off her kill. And some of our, what we call friendships, the more you think about it and you go, huh, what, do I have friendships where I would say these two would welcome a third and it would make this friendship richer? Or do I really want the kind of friend that I can suck life out of? I can just find that one person where the two of us will be able to give each other everything we need. Listen to what Lewis says here. He goes, in some ways, nothing is less like a friendship than a love affair. Lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Friends, side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. Above all, eros, that's romantic love, while it lasts, is necessarily between two only. But two, far from being the necessary number for friendship, is not even the best. And the reason for this is important. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to carry the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, and he's talking about his great friend Charles Williams. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to Charles's joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is dead, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third, and three by a fourth, if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. That's fascinating to think about. The difference, you know, in some ways, maybe some of what we call friendships are, are maybe not exactly what the Bible or other people who've lived before us thought friendship was about. But friendship is not just companionship either. 
uh, I, I thought about the, you know, the show Friends. And of course, by the end of the show, you know, uh, people get married, and so it kind of gets, gets kind of screwed up. But for many, many years, this was not a show about real friends. It was a show about companions who were each looking out for themselves, but happened to live all in the same apartment building. There, there are many times where you just felt like these people are there, like they kind of commiserate together, but they don't really sacrifice for one another. In, in so many ways, a lot of our friendships are that way. We have companions. We have people that we hang out with. But I wonder if they're really friends. And, and what I would contend is that only, I would say only is maybe a, a bit too strong, but I think the gospel, the good news that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners, when you get that into your heart and your soul and it begins to work its way into your life, it provides unique resources to help you actually be a good friend. Now, unfortunately, Unfortunately, the false gospel that we spent most of this year talking about, the false gospel in Galatians, where you basically feel like, I need to prove myself to God, I need to do all the right things so that he'll love me, that false gospel actually destroys your friendships because it makes you a bitter person who's always comparing yourself to other people and always jealous of what other people have. Um, But the true gospel, the true freedom that, that Christianity can bring, when it begins to seep into your life and work its way into your your whole being, actually has unique resources for helping you to be a friend. How is that? Well, it's because true friendship requires that we're able to serve one another in love. To serve one another. And listen, until, until you understand and you've received Jesus serving you, it's very difficult for you to feel like you have any extra to give. In other words, if you understand that you're fabulously wealthy and that you have a love that's been committed to you by God that will never vary, that will never dip, that will never disappear, then it gives you a security that enables you to to live in relationships where you don't have to get all of your life and security from other people. And of course, one of the things that destroys most of our friendships is our obsession with friendships. I, I mean, without a doubt, in ninth grade, when I became a Christian, if I think back on it, and as I've reflected back on it, I wanted friends more than I wanted God. Without a doubt. I was desperately lonely. Christians were the only people that were nice to me. I had some sense that I was a sinner and I needed to be forgiven and that God could give that to me. But, but really, I entered into this relationship wanting to use God to get friends. And of course, the more desperate I came, became for friends, the more it sort of always backfired on me. I remember one time a girl that I was friends with um, and she and her roommate were going out to do something and I'd, I'd happened to talk to her that day and I was like, you know, hey, can I tag along? I'm not doing anything. And she actually said to me, she goes, Kevin, you're just too intense. You're just too intense. Oh, I was. I was so desperate for friends that if I would even get anybody to say anything kind to me, I would be like all over them, calling up, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing, right? And you can't break out of that cycle unless a bigger love comes 
and starts to satisfy you in the deepest parts of your soul, right? So, so many of us were, were just caught in this cycle. Friendship is not just companionship. It's not just companionship. Listen to what, what Lewis says here about companionship and, and see how, how this compares to, to what you think friendship is or what kind of friends you have or friends you are. Um, Lewis says companionship, or he calls it clubbableness. <laughs> it's sort of his Oxford kind of setting where people had these clubs. They had supper clubs and they had clubs, right? He says companionship or clubbableness is only the matrix of friendship. It is often called friendship, and many people, when they speak of their friends, mean only their companions. But it is not friendship in the sense I am describing. Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover they have in common some insight or interest or taste which the others do not share and which, till that moment, each believe to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression, listen to this, of opening friendship would be something like, What? You two? I thought I was the only one. It is when two such persons discover one another, when whether with immense difficulties and semi-articulate fumblings or with what would seem to us amazing and elliptical speed, they share their vision, it is then that friendship is born. And instantly together they stand in an immense solitude. Lovers seek for privacy. Friends find this solitude about them. This barrier between them and the herd, whether they want it or not, it may be a common religion, common studies, a common profession, or even a common recreation. All who share it will be our companions, but one or two or three who share something more will be our friends. Now, when you hear him say that, you have to think, again, what does Christianity say to this? Christianity offers this opportunity for you to gather around together, this image of gathering at the throne and worshiping God, of being caught up together and working together to a common end, to bring the kingdom of God, justice, and, and life to this planet where we've been put. All of these sorts of things have within them the possibility of real friendship. Turn the page over and actually turn it upside down because I messed up the copy, sorry. So, so here's, you know, here's a description of friendship. It's different than, than romantic love. But it's also different than just mere companions. Though mere companionship is a start, don't be content with that. Because real friendship is much bigger. But mere friendship is always gathered around something bigger than the friends. I think the kingdom of God is a good thing for real friendship to develop around. So here's the issue. Here's the great irony. In a culture that idolizes friendship, there's very little friendship. The great tragedy is those who simply want friends to just to have friends for friends' sake never seem to be able to make them. This is my issue. All I really wanted were friends. I didn't want God. It was when I quit needing friends so much that I began to pursue other things that I actually began to find friends. Because friendship can never be just about friendship. It, it, it ends up sort of killing itself. It's like if you're in a dating relationship and you have too many DTR talks. Right? If you're constantly having define the relationship talks rather than actually getting to know the other person, the relationship pretty, pretty much usually dies. Right? There has to be something bigger than just the idea of wanting friends. And Lewis has a great little thing there, but I don't have time to, to read it. You can read it later. 
Um, but what he, what he says is that having a common purpose and a common sense of what is beautiful is vital for real friendship. When friendship becomes the goal rather than a delight along the way, true friendship can never really grow. Though, of course, idolatry and two people sucking the life out of each other, that can grow, and you can feel that you have friends who will never let you down. But, of course, if you're, if you're clinging to somebody for life, then you can't, you can't really be honest with them. <laughs> I mean, this is why we have these relationships where they're just not what we hoped they would be. Either we have people that will never tell us the truth, and we say, well, the good thing about this friend is they're always there for me. They never let me down. You know, I was thinking today, I always say, you know, so-and-so, yeah, you know, I got so-and-so friend, he's pretty cool, which means generally he's not going to bother me about anything. And I just thought, how empty is that? How many friends do we describe that way? You know, this person doesn't really get in my business, they don't bother me. That's not true friendship. But of course, if all that you have is, I just have to be friends with this person, but it's not anything bigger that you're friends about, then it's really difficult for you actually to be honest, because what if they say, Sorry, I'm, I'm out of here. So it's so important that we have, that friendship has a common purpose and a common sense of what's beautiful. It's absolutely vital. Lewis says it this way. I love this at the, the end of, of this little section. He says, you will not find the warrior, the poet, the philosopher, or the Christian by staring in his eyes as if he were your mistress. Better fight beside him, read with him, argue with him, pray with him. So in other words, if you come to RUF or you come to your church, you come to any Christian gathering and you're just looking around for, I got to find a friend, chances are you will walk away unsatisfied. But like Lewis says, fight alongside somebody. Read with them, argue with them, pray with them. It's out of this that real friendship can be born. But again, you know, how, how do we get there? How do we get there? Now, what does Ecclesiastes say about friendship? It adds a, a little more to this. Um, I've already talked about this, this idea of friends are for having an opportunity to delight in something, but Ecclesiastes also brings out another idea, that friends are helpful when one falls down, his friend can help him up for, for, for help. And again, like I said, Adam and Eve were created to be helpmates for one another. God knows that we need other people. He does. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, it's no small thing to be a true helper. And it's no small thing to find one. That's why the Proverbs say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Anything the Bible says is good, we should be looking for. And we should rejoice when we find it. And of course, the same would go on the other side of the, of the sexual um, issue. He who finds a husband finds a good thing. Right? Um, God created us to need people. And he wants to give us that good gift. And what you need to understand is, this is interesting, so many people come into Christian community in our Western individual kind of culture, we think in terms of me and my personal relationship with God, but the Bible really never talks about it that way. You understand this? The Bible talks about how when you come into a relationship with God, you're brought into a covenant community. Now, I'm not opposed to the idea of having a personal relationship with God. In my own story, when I first heard that idea, it was, it was kind of bizarre to me. I'd never heard it, but it also helped me understand something really important, that, that, that it really was a personal aspect that Jesus wanted to have a relationship with me. But he never brings just a relationship with him alone. When you relate to God, you relate to his people and to his church, his body. 
In other words, the covenant community is a really hugely important part of what it means to be a Christian and to understand Christianity. The gospel, you see, should bring a greater affinity, a greater unity, a greater thing for us to fellowship around and to find friendship around than anything else. This is why all of the things that, that people would have used as their identity in the first century, whether it be their family, whether it be their race, whether it be what they did for a living, all of those things are deconstructed and reconstructed by the gospel so that the New Testament writers will say things like, you know, um, you know, in the gospel, you basically have a new citizenship that, that we're now made citizens. In Ephesians, it uses this kind of language, that we're now citizens of this new heavenly city. If you were a citizen in the first century, a Roman citizen, that was a big deal, and you would wear it proudly on your chest. But the gospel says there's a citizenship that's much more important. Jesus says, you know, that in the, in the, sort of, in the kingdom, that he who gave up, you know, mothers and fathers and brothers will find mothers and brothers and fathers. In other words, a whole new family. We've been adopted into a new family. So the thing that would have given you your sense of identity, whether it's your family, whether it's what you did, whether it's your race, Jew or Gentile, all of these things are basically said to be secondary to this new relationship that you're in, this new kingdom, this new family, this new covenant community. And so here's the fascinating thing. We have a situation where so many of us feel like Okay, the way to find friends is to get really good at being able to judge people to know who's going to be faithful. So we're kind of constantly sort of auditioning people to see if they really can be our friends. But the gospel comes in and says, you know what? You've been brought into a community of people that you didn't choose. This is where friendship begins. <laughs> See, we think that the way to get good friends is to get really good at choosing the kinds of people, and then we get disappointed and let down all over and over again. And what does it happen? By the time you get to be my age, you begin to wonder whether you really can pick any good friends. And here's what the gospel says. Listen, God has brought you into a covenant community of people that aren't like you. In other words, friendship has got to be bigger than just people who are like you, and it is. The gospel is really, in other words, the basis for true friendship. How does this work? The gospel, the good news that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners, connects this way. A couple points on this and then we're done. The gospel rescues us not just from our sin, but from ourselves. Martin Luther said one time that that we all suffer from this disease, this, this inward curvature of the soul. We're obsessed with ourselves. We think about ourselves all the time. We think about everything else in relation to ourselves. You know, what can you do for me? How can you help me become more fully me? The gospel comes in and says, listen, things are different. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And that changes everything. It changes how you spend your time. It changes who you spend your time with. If you've been bought with a price and you're not your own. It's fascinating. Um, Paul goes so far actually to tell married men and women that even their bodies are not their own in 1 Corinthians 7, which wasn't an unusual thing to say to women in the first century. Unfortunately, the culture was cruel in that way and wrong, but it was a very unusual thing to say to a guy, to a man, that your body is not your own, it belongs to your wife. In other words, all the things that we think are ours by right, the gospel comes in and says, no, everything you have, you have as a gift, and you have to connect the dots to the way you live with other people in that. 
Of course, it also points us to Jesus. Jesus is the true friend. What is a true friend? You think about what you want from a friend. You want somebody that will let you all the way in and never let you down. But of course, there's no one who does that except Jesus. Others may give you a taste of his love. And, and that's part of the good gifts that friends are in this world, that you may taste a little bit of what Jesus is like through different people. But the only one who truly lets you all the way in and never lets you down is Jesus. I mean, it's so fascinating. Do you know, we know that Jesus sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because he brought several friends with him to sit with him and watch him pray. They didn't help him. They kept falling asleep. But Jesus constantly lets them all the way in to see him struggling, even saying, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. Nevertheless, not your will, but my will be done. He lets people into the very most intimate struggles that he has. He doesn't hide any of that from people. Jesus lets us all the way in. All the way in. And he never lets us down. Never. What is it that keeps us from being a good friend? Well, we struggle to let people in and we let people down. And why do we do that? Basically because of our fear and because of our pride. And yet, the truth that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners is the only thing that can actually help you with the things that keep you from being a good friend, help you with your fear and your pride. How does this work? Look at the last little paper. Listen, here's the gospel in, in a nutshell. The gospel is the truth that you're worse than you think. You may say, that's a weird thing. Gospel means good news. No, it's true. The gospel says you're worse than you think. And at the same time, more love than you ever thought could be possible because Jesus lived and died in your place. It, in other words, this deals with your pride because it's, whenever you're tempted to think, well, you know, how, how I'm never going to lower myself and humble myself and that person's offended me and how could I ever, you know, go back to them? Listen, the gospel says that you deserved death and hell. So get off your high horse, <laughs> right? Humble yourself. See yourself soberly, as the Bible says. The best way to fight your pride, which keeps you from serving others and expecting them to serve you, is to understand that Jesus served you and Jesus had to serve you or you would be without hope in the world. You had no hope in the world unless the Son of God took on flesh and humbled himself to death on a cross. So that deals with your pride because how can your pride stand when you see what Jesus had to suffer to reconcile you to the Father? We may think that we're pretty good and we'd be you know, great friends and anybody would be glad to have us but God the Father said, no, for me to be friends with you required my son to be tortured to death. So how wonderful do you think you were? <laughs> right? How can your pride stand? How can you think that you're better than anybody else when for you to be God's friend, Jesus had to die on a cross? But lest you despair, lest you despair, Jesus did die on a cross so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you could be friends with God, so that you could be friends with others, because you don't need 
their love and their approval. If Jesus, the Son of God, died in your place rather than live without you, that has to begin to deal with some of your anxiety of wondering, will I ever find a friend? The question is, will the true friend of friends find you? Will you reach out while he's near? The gospel, you see, is the only basis for friendship. But I would say this, how can it be the basis of friendship unless you never talk about what you find beautiful in it? And here's a, a very practical thing. You have to try to get together with Christian people and talk about what it is that you find beautiful in the gospel. What is it you find beautiful about this vision of the kingdom of God and your place in it? And when you talk about that, you give other people an opportunity to say, yeah, me too. I want to be part of that. If we all just sort of sit in a room and say, oh, that was very interesting. And then we go out and we just talk about other things. That, that, that the soil in which true Christian friendships develop is not, it's not really happening. Don't be shy. Talk to your friends about what you find beautiful. It's so important. Beware this. The spirit of our age of tolerance really works against true friendship. Because true friendship requires you to be sort of an oddball and say, you know what, I don't care what other people think. I think this is beautiful. I think this is wonderful. I think this is great. And, and, and then other people say, yeah, me too. And, 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 and whether that's about the gospel or whatever it is, um, there, there's something about, there's something about tolerance that sort of keeps people from caring about what makes you actually an individual and unique that's so sad. But rejoice in God because he gave Jesus to be our friend. One of the things that always touches me so much is that Jesus, Jesus says, you know, I've called you friends to his disciples, to this bungling group of guys who let him down time and time again. I mean, that, that, that last night when he's saying, all I want you to do is sit up with me and watch and pray, and, and they fall asleep on him. And he wakes them up, and he asks them again, and they fall asleep again. And I think, wow, the patience of Jesus. If I could have a friend like that. And here's what I want to say. You do. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If you have Jesus... You have a friend like that. And you have a friend like that who wants to mold you into his image so that you can be a friend like that. So that, so that his church, those who call themselves by his name, can go out in the world and show the world that Christianity actually makes a difference in how you live. Connecting the dots. Again, wisdom. How do we live in this fallen world? We don't just try to find one person who we can huddle together with for warmth. No, we find companions. We set before ourselves this vision, the beauty of Christ, our Savior, the beauty of this kingdom vision, the work that there is for us to do. And we get busy. And friendship arises out of that context. Now, I know some of you are graduating. Some of you, you know, you need to think about how will this impact the way you invest yourself in the fall with friendships. Uh, we've been, some of us who are, uh, you know, sort of some of the leaders in this RUF group and thinking about how does, how does, how do we need to, to grow even in our ability to, to fellowship and have friendship 
within this community. Because I tell you, one of the most important things for people who are exploring Christianity is to see a community where the stuff that we've been talking about tonight is actually beginning to be lived out. And it won't be perfect. Part of what it means is to say, what I find beautiful is the fact that Jesus is patient with me when I'm a bad friend. And then he continues to come to me again and again, and he forgives me, and he says, Kevin, don't give up, because I haven't given up, right? And even though you've made a mess of this, don't run away. Get in there. Reconcile, right? Jesus says, if you find that your friend has something against you, go and be reconciled. And if you know somebody has something against you, be reconciled, right? Christian community should be that kind of place. And, and my prayer is, that, is that, we would, that we would see that, not just for ourselves, but for the watching world who's desperate to know that there is another way to live. People are desperate to know that, that there is another way to live other than just living for yourself. And the question is, will we ask God to help us be part of the answer? I want that, but I'm afraid of that. Because, of course, to be a good friend always requires that you give up your independence. It's always that way. It's our greatest struggle in relationships. We want to be free to do whatever we want, whenever we want, but every relationship requires that you sacrifice that. You'll find out if you get married, <laughs> but hopefully you find it out sooner because you should find it out by being a good friend. And of course, Jesus found it out because he gave up everything because he was our friend. Let's pray together.